0: Lord, ready our hearts to receive the ministry of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit and the Word. Where we lack desire, Lord, give us a a hunger for your Word. And that we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us here this morning. In your name we pray, amen. We're in John 2. If you have a Bible, you can go to John 2, verses 13 to 22, or what we're looking at this morning. We're, during the season of Lent, we're looking at moments in John's gospel where it's as the cross casts a shadow over the whole gospel, but particular moments where we see a foreshadowing of the work on the cross. That's what we're looking at. So we're going to journey with Jesus to Jerusalem for a Passover feast. This morning. And before we go with him, let's do just remember two things. First, Jesus has already been identified as the Lamb of God. We talked about this last Sunday. John the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That would be significant for us because Jesus is going to celebrate what meal? In our gospel. Passover. He's going to go celebrate Passover. The second thing we should be mindful of, without getting into all the details, just before our reading in John 2, Jesus manifested his glory at a wedding. They had run out of wine. And Jesus had turned water into the best wine. And he, it says... In this sign, he manifested his glory, and the disciples believed him. And so this glory, according to John 1.14, is the glory as of the Father in the only Son, Jesus Christ. And so, how much they understood what was going on, we don't know. But they did see something of the glory of God in that moment. And so that would be significant, because Jesus is going not just to Jerusalem, but he's going to the temple. And in him is the glory of God. And the temple is where the Jews... Okay, so it's important to remember these things. Where they would expect the glory of God to be. So that brings us to verse 13. John 2, verse 13. The Passover, the Jews, was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're similar in the Synoptic Gospels. One Passover feast in Jesus' life is emphasized over all the other ones. It's, it's the Passover before his passion, in the week of his passion. Throughout John, though, we find out that Jesus went to Jerusalem for several other Passovers, at least that John makes note of. And this Passover, we touched on it last week. It's the Feast of Feasts in the Jewish calendar. It's the pinnacle moment, the the celebration of their deliverance by the hand of God from bondage in Egypt. This is in Exodus. God delivers, in Hebrew it's words against Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt. These great acts to soften Pharaoh's heart that he would let his people, the Israelites who were in bondage, that he would let them go. But one after another, it doesn't... Pharaoh's heart is hardened until one last blow. I will take your firstborn son. And the only way you can survive is if you sacrifice a lamb in his place and you put the blood of this lamb on your doorpost. That will be a sign to me and to you that you are safe by a sacrificial lamb. And after this, Pharaoh's son dies and there's a great outcry in Egypt. Israel is released and they go And the Israelites, not much later, God commands them, celebrate this meal every year so that you can remember I rescued you and it took a lamb and you can continue to tell your children about this rescue. They could live into that story. That's what the meal was. It was living into the story of Israel. And God commanded them to celebrate this yearly. So Jesus goes to celebrate this meal. He would have done it every year of his life, celebrating this meal with his parents, to live into this story. And it says, to celebrate the feast, he goes up to Jerusalem. He goes up physically to go to Jerusalem. If, you lived, if you're a first century Jew and you live in the area and you're going to Jerusalem, you have to ascend. You have to go up in elevation. That's why we have... Psalms of ascent, you would sing them as you're actually climbing up toward Jerusalem, but also spiritually, you go up towards the presence of God. You're ascending towards where God has chosen to make His name dwell. And this is important because the Passover, this is the only place you could make the sacrifice, it says in Deuteronomy 16, beginning with verse five, God commands, "You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall have this Passover sacrifice. You shall offer the sacrifice. And God had chosen to dwell amongst his people in Jerusalem, in the temple. And so this is where Jesus, who is the glory of God, who is the lamb, is going to celebrate the meal. That's why verse two says, In the temple. He goes to the temple. And if we want to grasp what's going on here this morning, we need to understand a little bit of the central place that the temple held for the life of the Jews and the Old Covenant. Above all, and I've already told you this, the Jewish people knew that God had chosen to dwell amongst them in the temple, to manifest his presence there, among them. So this is where God lived with his people. In 2 Chronicles 7, we know that when the presence of God fell, it filled the temple in such a way that God's presence was there, drove everyone out. God filled the temple with his presence. In Psalm 5, 7, David says he's going to go to the temple, the house of God. So this is the view that would have been at that time, the tabernacle, but the house of the Lord. Because God's presence resided in the temple, the temple was the means to access God, to go towards him and to be in relationship with him. Prayers were prayed toward the temple. Psalm 28 verse 2 tells us this. And it's from the temple that prayers were answered. In Psalm 18, it says this. If you were with us on Sunday, Complin, how did Daniel pray in Babylon? Where did he face He opened the windows, and he faced towards what? The temple, towards Jerusalem, where God's presence was. That's where prayers were prayed. He prayed toward the temple because God was there, and the answers would come from there. Because God dwelt there, the temple was a holy place. Psalm 63, verse 2. We also see this in Exodus 40. In our, our Old Testament reading back in verse 9, it says, when God's presence fell, it became holy. Something totally other." Because God was there. It's in the temple that servants ministered to the Lord on behalf of the people. And from God to the people, the ministers would minister to the people as well. That's in Psalm 134, verse 1. If you're planted in the house of the Lord, you will flourish. That is, if God's house is a big part of your life, you will flourish. Psalm 92 tells us this. From the temple came the blessings of God, forgiveness of sin. Rich harvest, economic health. This is in Psalm 65, 4 and Leviticus 23. To be planted and to be in the house of God. So we could go on and on and on about the temple and how important it was. But I share all of that to make the summary point. In the Old Covenant, the temple was the connecting point between God and God lived among his people there, and from his presence there flowed blessing to the people. God's people would gather there to worship, to learn about God and his word, to pray there, and to offer sacrifice there. That when they were outside of relationship with God because of covenant faithlessness, they would go to the temple to be restored to God. And the sacrifice made there, especially on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 23. This, in the temple, is where God and man could join. Even with veiled and in a shadow, in some way, they could have something of the presence of God. This is where Jesus goes. This is where he goes. And what does he find? Prayers filling the house of the Lord. People singing and making a joyful noise. A general attitude of everyone just seeking the holy presence of God and the priest helping and ushering people towards the holy presence of God. Is that what he finds in our gospel reading? No. He does not find that. He finds the temple corrupted by men and women impeding the pursuit of the Father. He finds merchants selling oxen and sheep and pigeons for sacrifices. He finds money changers. They're exchanging dirty coins, impure coins like Roman coins. You give that and they'll give you a pure coin so you can make your temple tax. You can pay your temple tax. And this is all happening. It'd be happening in the court of the Gentiles. In the first part of the temple. The, The court of the Gentiles, that's where if you weren't a Jew, you could go and seek God there. You could be near his presence in that area, the court of the temple, uh, the court of the Gentiles. But right now it's crowded with merchants. It's noisy with oxen. Instead of the smell of incense, you smell manure. The temple, this connecting point, it's been turned into a house of trade. That's what the ESV says. And Jesus, he's consumed. He's consumed. He is zealous for a proper reverence for God's dwelling place, proper response to God's presence. He wants people pursuing the Lord. Couldn't you just imagine for a moment that you're there? If you want to imagine with me, you could close your eyes and the best that you can, not knowing as much about first century Jewish life, but you've traveled there, you've walked there in your sandals, and you've arrived. And you didn't bring a sacrifice because you know they sell them there. And so I'll get one. I don't want to try to keep a pigeon alive all the way to Jerusalem. So I'll get one when I get there. When you arrive this year though, the merchants have set up in the temple. And so you go into the temple and you're bartering for a pigeon and the the noise of other people negotiating and animals is filling the space. And suddenly, as though it wasn't chaotic enough, chaos breaks loose. There's some guy whipping a whip around the room. The Greek indicates that the whip was aimed at the merchants, not the animals. Now, I'm not saying he actually hit people, but that was what it was for, to get them out. And it's cra- all of a sudden, he's flinging the whip at the pigeon guy that you're talking to. And so you're ducking to try to miss the whip. He's telling people, get out of the house of the Lord. And then he grabs jars and he starts dumping all this coin everywhere. It's clattering all over the stones. And you think, I'm going to grab some of this. But then he starts flipping tables, even the table that you're standing at. And now you think, I better get out of here for my life's sake. And so you hide behind a sheep as it scurries out. That's what's going on. Jesus is gentle and lowly, and he knows how to crack a whip. And that's what happens in the house of the Lord. God's son has come to the father's house to worship, to enjoy this feast of deliverance. And rather than setting up across the way, the merchants have come into the house. Jesus wasn't so much upset that they were selling sacrifice. That was helpful for traveling Jews. He's upset because they're turning the house of the Lord into a house of trade. And the disciples, when they... So Jesus, he, he disrupts all of this that's going on. Really, he disrupts it all. And Jesus' disciples, they're reminded of a psalm when they watch this unfold. Can you imagine, you you've followed this rabbi on the way, John told you, go with him, and now you're associated with the guy that has the whip in the temple. But when you see it, you think of Psalm 69, which we had read for us, this idea of David was consumed with zeal for the Lord. And so watching it, you're like, David? As Jesus is disrupting the corruption in his father's house, we read in verse 18, So, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? These Jews, more than likely the temple authorities, the priests in charge, they were the ones who would have granted access to the court of the Gentiles, to these merchants, They've given them their permission. And now this Galilean is acting like he's the boss of God's house. And so they come to him and they ask essentially, who do you think you are? You better have a good sign. It's a question of authority. What type of authority do you think you have? Because to rule over God's house, you have to have heavenly authority. So show us a sign. Prove that you have the right to do this. And Jesus graciously offers them a sign. If you will take him up, he will give you the sign. He says, it's in verse 19. Look there, here's the the offer. Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That would be an appropriate Sign since up to this point in verse 20, it's taken 46 years to construct this temple. And if it could be destroyed and he would raise it up in three days, surely that would be some power of God stuff. And he would prove that he has the authority they're asking about. This is a prophetic challenge. It's a prophet-like challenge to these Jewish leaders. Jesus, he doesn't say, I will destroy the temple and then rebuild it. It's an offer, destroy, destroy the temple and I will raise it up. In Amos 4, four, that's what I thought of. The prophet, he challenges the sinful people of God. He says, keep on doing what you're doing. Keep going the direction you're going. Keep sinning and pretending like everything is okay and you'll find out God is not This is damaging the people of God. That's Amos' challenge. And so it's similar here where the truth is, the Jewish leaders are destroying the temple. That's what they're doing. They're corrupting the temple. They're rendering it unhelpful by crowding the entranceway. They are not seeking God. They are seeking monetary gain. They're not living as lights to the nations. They're allowing the court of the Gentiles to be crowded with animals. They're not bringing people to holy, reverent prayer. As they approach the holy place, they're offering convenience so that people can get in and get out on the busy holiday. They're not interested in Jesus' authority either. They're interested in their own authority. Thus the question, who do you think you are? The house of the Lord has been turned into a trade house. But Jesus has come. It's interesting John uses in John 1, the word became flesh. It's tabernacle. God's house has come to earth. And now here is Jesus entering into what is to be the house. But in Christ is the very location of all the fullness of God, pleased to dwell bodily. And here he walks into the home. He walks into the temple. So John tells us what Jesus meant when he said, destroy the temple. And I'll raise it up. It's verse 21. Thank you, John, for letting us know. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That is what he would accomplish, what he was up to in his incarnation. The temple of his body. You can almost see Jesus pointing at the temple saying, destroy all of this and I will build a new temple. And pointing to himself. The temple was God's design to help people walk in covenant relationship with him. To be restored to him. And when you have fallen, to be re-restored to him. God had told his people exactly how to build it. And then he had told them in detail the actions they needed to perform in this temple. He allowed Solomon to build the first temple, Moses to build the tent. But the temple failed to bring men and women into a right relationship with the Father. It wasn't working. It's Hebrews 8. It wasn't working. Why? Because God's design was flawed. No. In fact, we're going to find out it was God's design was perfect. It was because and is because man's heart is sinful. Sin, it's turning from God to worship and serve anything that is not God. And like the priests, the Jewish leaders, these money changers and merchants... It's our tendency in the fall and with broken hearts to take holy things and corrupt them. We know that in Christ our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, yet we bring sin into our lives. We take Eden and we bring death. Though we know God's commands are good and for our good, we listen, we tend to listen to the world and what the world says is good. We take the temple and we make it a house we exchange. For example, as we gather together in this, the house of the Lord now as saints to worship him, we're often not you in this room, obviously, but we have to exchange that for different things hobbies or sleeping in or sports. We pursue convenience over holiness. We block the glory of the Father from others as we pursue our own gain and our own fame. And during Lent, we recognize this, we name this, we confess this, and together we seek afresh the solution. The temple, though, according to Hebrews, was more than a building built by hands. It was more than an attempt. It was actually a picture Of a heavenly reality. The temple is not so much about what we needed to do. It was foretelling about what God would do. And here in John 2, Jesus, he points to himself. And I'm thinking, of all the New Testament, here's essentially what he says. I am the temple. I am the way. I am the heavenly plan come to you. I'm the reality. The shadow was about me. The presence of God among us. The mediator of all our prayers. The focus of our service to the Father. The priest who can make a final sacrifice. This is what Jesus says. I'm everything the temple pointed to. Fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, In me something greater than the temple has come. The house of the Lord was the means through which God would dwell with men and through which his blessing would be with them. But now in Christ, that, this is the connecting point. This is how we come into a right relationship with the Father. It is through Jesus. And how does Jesus do this? How does he fulfill the temple and all the obligations of the temple in such a way that Hebrews 8 could say, it's obsolete, no more. it's needed no more, something better is here oh jesus allows his zeal for the dwelling place of god among men to consume him psalm 69 it tells us david was consumed because he loved god's house and in if you go back and read it the word consume it's about the persecution that he experienced the reproach that was on him the way that people hated him because he loved god's house and so jesus too was consumed Because he loved this heavenly plan of God coming to dwell with men. And this invitation to men and women to come and live with God. That is to live in God's light. To have God's life. To to walk in the way of the Father and to glorify him. So Jesus was consumed when he was destroyed. And he was destroyed to bring God to us driven to reunite fallen men and women to the Father, us who are plagued with sinful hearts, Jesus, who is God with us, who is the Lamb of God, come to us. The presence of God with us. He lit, he, he came to purify more than just a building. That's what I told our children. He came to purify our hearts. He did this by walking out his humanity totally pure and holy and glorious, without sin. The only one worthy to step foot into the house of the Lord. And he takes unholy things and he makes them holy. He walked into this world that was fallen as if he lived in Eden, dwelling every moment with the Father, walking in the cool of the morning with his Father. He was not interested in convenience. He was interested in the Father's plan. Not interested in his own glory or authority. In fact, he counted that as loss. He didn't count it as something to grasp at. But he humbled himself to obey the Father. Then, he exchanged his pure life for our wretchedness. This is what the temple Was teaching us. This is the good news. This is the better covenant, the plan. That in Christ, our unrighteousness would fall on him as the final sacrifice. And his purity, his one righteousness, his holiness would be given to us as a gift. That we would be welcomed into the presence of the Father. It's a foreshadowing here of the purifying work that the Son would do on the cross. On the cross, he was destroyed by hands who had destroyed the temple. Eventually, they will crucify Jesus for this. Destroy this temple, and I'll build a new one. In his trial, this is the accusations that are leveled at him. Remember, he said he would destroy the temple. They're wrong. He never said he would. But he came and shed his atoning blood to rescue us who would corrupt the temple. That we could be saved. And his being destroyed, the temple is rendered obsolete. And so the Son becomes the means through which we are welcomed into relationship with the Father. And all of this is proved, it's guaranteed to us, it's stamped by God, because three days after his crucifixion, he was raised. And he ascended to the Father into the heavenly temple as the true mediator of the better covenant, and he sat down with all authority next to the Father. So his sign that he offers, as we've worked it out, is this. Substitutionary, sin-atoning death, and death-defeating resurrection. That's a pretty good sign. I want to encourage you in just two ways as we come to a close. First, in our passage, the presence of God had come... With authority into the temple. Jesus sought reform and change to purify the house. He drove out these corrupt practices. But the people in question, the merchants and the money changers, and the people asking the questions, the Jewish leaders, after Jesus left, they all went back to normal. It all happened again. The stalls were set up inside the temple. Jesus will drive them out again. They were unchanged by the presence of God in their midst. The Jewish leaders, they they don't pause and say, Is this guy right? Instead, they challenge him. No, he's wrong. They even know that he could be from heaven. In John 3, a guy named Nicodemus, he says, we know that you are sent from God. But they weren't interested in being transformed by God's presence. They were interested in keeping what they had. And so here's what I want to ask you. Are you interested this morning, by God's grace, to be changed by the presence of Christ among us? They were unchanged. But we, by the Spirit in us, we can be changed. The messes in our hearts, God can clean them. And we make this mistake of not allowing God's presence to transform us when we hear the prompting of the Spirit and we ignore it. Or we make this mistake when we hear the word proclaimed and we don't ask, Holy Spirit, what, what are you doing in my heart? So this morning, I would encourage you that Jesus is here. And In this season of Lent, he is working to clean up messes in our lives. Be changed by his gracious presence. Second, to be changed, we must believe. Jesus shows here there's a right way to approach approach God, and it's through him. That's how we come to the Father. The temple showed us we're unable to approach God rightly. Even the sacrifices we try to make, this is speaking in the Old Covenant, that that we try to make, they're made with impure hands and impure hearts. We needed a better sacrifice. A sacrificial lamb who could purify our core. And Jesus, he went to the temple on Passover here, but he would come again to Jerusalem. Not to just celebrate the Passover, but to become the final Passover lamb. And we who are in bondage, not in Egypt, but to our sin, we come to Christ, who is the lamb, who shed his blood not over a doorpost, but on a wooden cross. And that cross becomes the sign to us of our salvation and to God that we are safe in Christ. How do we receive this gift? coming into the presence of the Lord, forgiveness of sin, change in our lives, we do what the disciples did in John 2, 22. They looked at the risen Christ years later. They looked at his crucifixion. They opened the scriptures, and it says they believed the words of Jesus. They believed in who Christ is. And so we... Cast our trust onto Christ, not a system, not a work, not a fast, not a temple, but on the person of Jesus Christ. And we are saved and given the power to be changed by God's presence in us. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, that where we are weak, you are strong. You are able to rescue us. You are able to redeem us and to save us to take us who are unholy and make us holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I pray for a washing in the blood that the parts of our hearts that are a mess, Lord Jesus, gently, gently cleanse us. If you need to, we ask that you would just drive those things out with force that would keep us from your presence and with faith in you Help us to step closer and closer into life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.